Hey everybody, Robert Polly here with another edition of the 7th Avenue Project. And today I'll be discussing heaven and earth, no less, with one of the world's best-known astrophysicists, Martin Rees. Martin Rees has spent most of his career at Cambridge University in England, and he's had a hand in many of the biggest developments in astronomy and cosmology over the last 40 years. He's helped advance our understanding of things like galaxy formation, dark matter, black holes, and quasars. And just to give you a sense of his enormous scientific output, he has written or co-written over 500 research papers, not to mention a bunch of popular science books as well. And along the way, he has been honored with some very distinguished titles. He is Master of Trinity College at Cambridge. A few years ago, he was named Lord Rees, Baron of Ludlow. And he is also Britain's official astronomer royal, which may be the coolest sounding of all his honorifics, but it's also one of the least meaningful, he says. He has written, in fact, that the duties of the Astronomer Royal are so exiguous they could be performed posthumously. Well, thankfully, it has not come to that. Martin Rees is very much with us, and he was with me for a wide-ranging conversation about cosmology, where it's been, where it's going, about the power and limits of science, and about his own beginnings in astrophysics. I suppose as a kid I was keen on science, but uh, no more keen on uh, stars than on beetles, for instance, um, and was interested <laughs> in numbers. But uh, uh, I think uh, when I was at high school, as you would call it, uh, you have to specialise in your last two years, and I specialised in uh, math and science. But to be honest, that was because I was bad at languages. And oh. so it was a negative choice that led me into science. But then I proved to be quite good at math, and uh, that led me to go to Cambridge to study it, and so my bachelor's degree was in that, but then I realized I wanted to do something else. And you went on to study at Cambridge with uh, Dennis uh, Sharma, Sharma, Mm -hmm. teacher and mentor to a whole generation or more of great Mm -hmm. physicists, Mm -hmm. including yourself, Stephen Hawking, Mm -hmm. David Deutsch, uh, I mean, Roger Penrose was influenced by him. Yes. Mm -hmm. Tell me about Dennis Sharma. Well, he was uh, a really inspirational figure, and my biggest piece of luck actually was that when I did decide to do astrophysics I was allocated to him as my supervisor what you'd call advisor and he uh, made me sure after one year that I was doing the right thing because he was such an enthusiast and was indeed the advisor for a number of other uh, students who went on to fairly successful careers. Um, that's partly because being in Cambridge of course one had the pick of very good students um, Stephen Hawking was two years ahead of me, so uh, I knew him uh, from when he was finishing his PhD, and there were a number of others, and Dennis Sharma had whole generations of these students. And what was so good about him was that he encouraged us to talk to each other, and himself had broad interests, and so got the uh, newest version of the uh, papers. Of course, it was before the time of the uh, email and the internet so you got the papers by mail and uh, we excitedly circulated them when they were new and so I remember hearing about the first quasars with high redshifts, the evidence of the Big Bang and all these things. Uh, Roger Penrose was interesting because he was actually um, more as a contemporary of Dennis Sharma or indeed a bit senior and he was a really serious mathematician but Dennis Sharma managed to persuade him that cosmology was an interesting subject Mm. and then Roger Penrose applied his mathematical techniques to relativity and thereby I think really triggered the renaissance 
in relativity in the 1960s and inspired people like Stephen Hawking to develop it because relativity, of course, was invented by Einstein in 1915, but for 30 or 40 years it had been a rather sterile backwater, as it were, for two reasons, really. One was that there were no objects known in the universe for which it was more than a small correction. Mm-hmm. It was good enough for ordinary stars. And by the way, we're talking general relativity here. Yes, the theory of right. gravity. Yes, Einstein's theory of gravity, which came in 1915. And um, uh, that's a tiny correction to uh, Newton's theory uh, in the solar system, the orbit of Mercury, the bending of light in eclipses and all that. And also, it was really bypassed by the exciting development of quantum theory. So it wasn't central to physics. But in the 1960s, uh, Roger Penrose stimulated the theorists to think more deeply about the nature of relativity, and at the same time the motivation came from the evidence that there was a Big Bang, this evidence coming mainly from the discovery of the micro-background radiation, the uh, afterglow of the hot Big Bang, as it were, and also from the discovery of compact objects, neutron stars um, and Black black holes, where... Einstein's theory of relativity is not just a tiny correction, but is crucial. And so all that happened in the 1960s, and so it was the beginning of uh, what we call high-energy astrophysics. So you chose, to say the least, an opportune time to jump into the field when modern cosmology as we know it was being invented in a way. Mm -hmm. The idea that we could actually contemplate Mm -hmm. the overall geometry, the size, the um, evolution and origins of the entire universe from the Big Bang on, was almost inconceivable prior to that, I think. Well, th- that's right. And uh, uh, going back to the earlier history, there was a theory called the steady-state theory. That's right. Uh, which was uh, uh, very popular in Britain. I think it didn't have much impact <laughs> either in the U.S. or in Russia, which were the other main centers for this research. Um, but it had three uh, very eloquent proponents in Britain, uh, Hoyle, Bondi, and Gold, who invented it in 1948, and it had a lot of traction in Britain. And Dennis Sharma uh, claimed to be the most uh, enthusiastic supporter of it other than its inventors, and he was very gung-ho about this theory. And um, uh, it was quite a trauma for him when the evidence came out against it. But the reason people liked it was that people thought that in the steady-state theory, everything that was important for the formation of stars and galaxies was going on somewhere now. It wasn't relegated to some past epoch. Mm-hmm. And they thought that if it was not the case that the universe was in steady state, if there was some sort of Big Bang, then we'd never understand the early universe. But, of course, what happened was that we found evidence for the Big Bang, micro-background, etc. Right. But it turned out that we could study it. In fact, within a few years, people were talking in quite a lot of detail about what the universe was like when it was... Uh, a few seconds or a few minutes old, what nuclear reactions happened, etc. So uh, that, I think, reconciled people like Sharma to the Big Bang because uh, uh, it was clearly supported by evidence, but it didn't mean that we would never understand these mysteries about how things began. It meant that we could understand them, even though they happened when the entire universe was squeezed hotter and denser than the center of a star. Uh, Just to clarify for listeners, the steady-state idea... Well, the head-of-state idea was uh, uh, that although the universe was expanding, uh, it was uh, not overall changing, because as the galaxies moved apart, new ones formed in the gaps, as it were, Mm -hmm. so that the universe always looked the same at any time. There was no beginning. It had been there 
from everlasting to everlasting, as it were. Yes. In an infinite conveyor belt. In that, that's sense. right. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was a consistent idea. Uh-huh. And uh, even before we had the very firm evidence of the Big Bang that came from discovering this background radiation, there were intimations which actually came from other people at Cambridge University, Sir Martin Ryle and others, that the universe wasn't in a steady state. But over the course of your career, or maybe going back just a bit farther, uh, the whole picture of the universe has gone from one in which they weren't even sure there was an origin Mm -hmm. to a, a very detailed description of cosmic history from what may have been the beginning or may not, depending on whether you believe in multiple Mm -hmm. universes. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To now, uh, an idea that the overall geometry of the universe is flat, um, at least an idea of the size of the observable universe. So a whole geography, in a way, of the universe and and, and biography of the universe. I mean, what's it been like to be there for all of that? Well, it's been fascinating to participate in all these debates and to see issues which were once controversial, settled, and now to be able to debate uh, questions that couldn't even have been posed 50 years ago. Um, so it's been uh, exhilarating to see this progress. I suppose what happened in the late 1960s was the first evidence for uh, objects with large redshifts, meaning they're seen a long way away a long time ago, and this gave us some picture for how the universe had changed. It told us that galaxies were different back in the past, um, and uh, that led us to think about how a early amorphous hot dense state, the Big Bang, evolved into the kind of universe we see around us. And the general picture which uh, developed back in the 1960s and early 1970s was that in the early universe um, things were almost completely smooth but not quite there were some places where the density was a bit higher than average, and eventually the overdense regions turned into galaxies. galaxies. And this picture really started to develop in the 70s. Um, and the next big step forward came in the 1980s. Uh, and this came with the firming up of the evidence that if you look at a galaxy, then it contains not just stars and gas, but it contains also what's called dark matter, which is some kind of particles which we now think are made in the Big Bang. We're still not not quite sure what they are, but these particles form a sort of swarm in the galaxy, and they provide about uh, um, 80% or a bit more of its total mass. So a galaxy is held together by the gravitational pull, not just of what we see, but of this dark matter. This invisible matter we haven't quite identified yet. And I understand that you were part of that group that first proposed what is now the prevailing theory, cold dark matter. Well, th- that's right. The dark matter was uh, discovered um, just by looking at galaxies and clusters and realizing they couldn't hold themselves together against gravity if there wasn't this extra stuff. But the important breakthrough in the early 80s, where indeed I was involved, uh, was realizing that uh, if the uh, early universe contain not just radiation and atoms but the dark matter and we did the calculations of how putting in the dark matter really changed the picture a lot and gave us a much more self-consistent picture and this led to what's called the cold dark matter picture and um, uh, I collaborated with people at uh, Santa Cruz in this and um, in fact I think uh, uh, the Chancellor of Santa Cruz uh, 
George Blumenthal, uh, I think his most highly cited paper is a paper known as Blumenthal et al. And the et al. was uh, me and two other Santa Cruz professors. That would be Sandra uh, Faber and, Faber and, uh, Joel and Primack, Primack. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that was a paper in the mid-1980s uh, which sort of codified the idea uh, of the um, uh, code of matter scenario and how it would allow you to understand the formation of galaxies. That was one of the key papers, and um, Sandy Faber did many of the key observations, and uh, Joe Premack in particular has uh, done a great deal of work over the years, even over decades, in developing this theory. But this, this theory uh, really enables us to understand uh, the properties of galaxies and how they're clustered. And um, it's still the basic picture, but there was a big development in the late 1990s, which was to realize that the universe in its dynamics was not just being governed by gravity, but there was this mysterious force, a repulsive force, pushing things apart. Dark energy. Uh, which is sometimes called dark energy. And we now have this uh, standard picture, which goes by the acronym Lambda CDM, Lambda being the... Uh, uh, Greek letter normally used to denote this uh, mysterious energy in empty space and CDM for dark matter. And we could probably now say that we understand in broad outline how the universe evolved from the time when it was about a nanosecond old. Remind me, a nanosecond is a billionth of a it's second? A billionth of a second, yes. 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 Um, and beyond that, all is unknown because we don't understand the physics yet that would have happened in something so dense and so hot as this tiny point that contained what was to be the universe. That's, that's right, and that's a frustration because <laughs> uh, most people accept that if you want to answer the big questions like why is the universe expanding the way it is, why does it contain this particular mixture of dark matter, atoms and radiation, uh, why did the Big Bang have this uh, overall smoothness but these sort of ripples on it which were the seeds for galaxies. To answer all those questions, we have to go back much earlier than the end of the first nanosecond. Uh, to put this in perspective, um, if the universe was a nanosecond old, then everything we can now see out to the limit of our telescopes, out to 10 or 15 billion light years, would have been squeezed down to the size of a solar system. But many people believe that the key questions about why the universe is expanding the way it is and why it has a content it has uh, can't be answered until we understand the universe much, much further back, when everything we now see would have been squeezed down, not to the size of a solar system, but to the size of a tennis ball. And that's the very extreme situation when we believe that the crucial processes happened which determined the shape of the universe and its contents. And there's an idea called the inflationary universe, which uh, is a beautiful idea, uh, which uh, can... Uh, give us a model that works right back to that tiny time, which is a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, not a nanosecond. Well, you've hit on most or all of the, the really momentous discoveries over this time we're talking about, which is your career. Mm -hmm. Everything from the real confirmation of the Big Bang to early Big Bang uh, physics and inflation through the discovery of dark matter and uh, now dark energy – which of the many things that have happened has most blown your mind? Well, I think what's been 
gratifying is that uh, we've gradually seen a consistent story emerge. Of course, at any stage in science, mm. you could have some mm. discovery which completely overthrows everything. Yeah. But that hasn't happened. Yeah. Uh, things are firmed up, etc. But I think we should bear in mind that what we've talked about has been the growth structure of the universe. At the same time, uh, we've discovered a great deal more about the individual things in it, about the evolution of stars, how they form, how they die, and about uh, extreme kinds of stars. And one of my own interests has been in things called gamma-ray bursts, which are stars which die in an unusually explosive way so that they uh, release in uh, just a few seconds more energy than the sun puts out in 10 billion years. And this energy comes in a beam, and if that beam zaps towards you, it's a very bright object even from the edge of the universe. So there have been all these new discoveries, and I should mention uh, the things that excite me most um, in the last 10 years has been the discovery of planets around other stars. This is a completely new field, uh, which makes the night sky much more interesting because most of the stars we see we now realize, uh, like the sun, in having a retinues of planets around them. And this is a new field developing very fast indeed. So not only have we understood the big picture better, but uh, we're filling in more of the details and realizing that the tapestry is much richer than we thought. Well, obviously we've come a long way. I'm kind of curious, though, uh, you know, we, we mentioned the steady-state theory, which was a kind of prejudice that some... I think, cosmologists had. The universe couldn't have been a tiny point at one time. It must have always been this way. Einstein had a similar prejudice. He thought the universe was static, and he worked very hard to justify that idea. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, now we have an expanding universe, not just expanding from the Big Bang till now, but expanding ever faster due to this thing you mentioned, dark energy. Mm -hmm. We have um, invisible matter called cold dark matter, which is mm, roughly 25% of the overall mass of the universe. Mm -hmm. Are there any things that you're attached to at this point such that you would be upset or work hard to defeat any alternative? <laughs> um, well, it's a mistake to be too emotionally attached to any theory, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think uh, I would be surprised if that general picture you just outlined were to be overthrown. I think it is so firmly established that it uh, won't be overthrown, except that the nature of the so-called dark energy uh, is something which... I think we won't understand fully for a long time, and so we can't be sure that this uh, uh, effect that's pushing galaxies apart will remain forever. So the ultra-long-range forecast, like most long-range forecasts, isn't too reliable. Uh, if the uh, dark energy has the simplest form we expect, which is really something which Einstein himself thought about, um, then the universe will get ever colder, ever emptier, and go on forever. Um, but we can't be too confident about that because this dark energy may itself change with time. Be changing, and, yeah. Then what happened? Um, it could and, be what's, what Einstein called the cosmological constant. Uh, yes, that's the simplest version. If that's the case, then it's a big challenge to explain it. Could it? I mean, it's it's sometimes explained. As just a part of general relativity, it is, in a sense, the springiness of space itself, that space has yes. built into it a kind of a repulsive force that counteracts that uh, mm. contracting force, gravity, and that's what's pushing things apart. Is yes. that good enough for you? Well, I think uh, that probably is uh, what is actually happening. But, of course, we'd like to understand it on a deeper level, and that's what theorists are trying to do. Um, just as we know that... Uh, um, any solid object, tapering like that, can't be chopped up indefinitely. You get down to atomic structure. Uh, so most people believe that you can't chop up space and time indefinitely. You get down to a very, very small level where uh, graininess or com 
quantum effects come in. At a very, very small scale. Very small scale. And uh, uh, we don't understand a theory that copes with this uh, quantum uh, nature of space and time and gravity, but there is an agreement that the scale on which it manifests itself is what's called the Planck scale, after Max Planck, uh, the first person to talk about quantum effects, and this scale is a billion, billion times smaller than an atomic nucleus. Very, very far from anything we can uh, envisage. But there are lots of theories, in particular uh, a theory called string theory, uh, which postulates that uh, if you did chop up space on this very, very fine scale, then what we think of as a point yeah. would, on that tiny scale, be, in fact, a very complicated, wrapped-up origami in five or six extra dimensions. And this is very, very complicated mathematics and very uncertain. And so, to understand why there is this elasticity or force in empty space, I think we'd have to wait till people have sorted out a theory of that kind. I see. And I'm not holding my breath for that. I think it's a long time <laughs> before we'll understand that. That's a long way away. On the other hand, the dark matter, uh, which we have good evidence for, um, we know consists of particles that just swarm around, don't collide very much, don't have any electric charge. We don't know what they are. There are lots of candidates. And I'm hopeful that in the next uh, few years we will pin down what the dark matter is. There are lots of candidates. There's no mystery about there being dark matter. There's no reason why everything in the universe should shine any more than everything on Earth shines. So uh, there are lots of candidates. But I think we'd like to pin down which particular type of particle the dark matter is made of. But the dark energy, I say, is a fundamental mystery, and that won't be solved until we have this uh, unified theory uh, which unifies Einstein's theory of gravity, general relativity, which works on the large scale with the quantum theory, which is important in the micro world. So I'm going to join you in not holding my breath on dark <laughs> energy. But dark matter, I mean, as you say, we could identify the particle um, in just the way that the Higgs boson was just identified. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the finding could come out of the Large Hadron Collider. It could. There are some particles called supersymmetric particles, which uh, have been long thought to be the good candidates for the dark matter, and they may be found. But on the other hand, uh, they may be particles of higher energy which won't be found so easily, so we don't know. Um, the physics is uncertain, but uh, I would say that the um, existence of some sort of particle which uh, makes up a lot of the mass of galaxies, is pretty firmly established. I mean, if you want to disbelieve in that, then you've got to abandon Newton's theory of gravity mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> uh, the inverse square law and all that, and people aren't, aren't willing to do, do that. So I think the evidence for there being dark matter, which basically is a swarm of some kind of neutral particles, is pretty firm. Right. Um, were you following closely the uh, the Higgs boson uh, announcement, which happened earlier this year? Uh, well, fairly closely. I can't claim to be an expert. Um, the impression I have, really, is that it's pretty compelling and that what would have been more surprising would be had they found nothing right. because uh, it's a piece of a jigsaw that was expected to be there if the rest of the picture uh, is correct. Had they found nothing, that would have been a case when they would have had to rethink a lot of ideas that were thought well-established. So uh, the discovery of the Higgs is reassuring that particle physicists have been on the right lines. Um, For a very long time. Yeah, indeed, yes. But, uh, um, of course, as a European, I'm very proud that the uh, LHC in CERN has become the world center of particle physics. Um, and it would be disappointing if that's all it does. And we <laughs> hope very much that we'll discover some other surprises, uh, perhaps 
other particles that will be the candidates for dark matter. Uh, some optimists think it will find something even more exotic, like evidence for extra dimensions or something like that. Right. But I th- hope it will find something other than confirming the Higgs. I, I'm curious. Um, obviously, someone who's worked as long as you have uh, and as closely as you have in physics and astrophysics com- cosmology, I mean, you must have a, a strong sense of just how firm the structure of knowledge is, the step-by-step accumulation of evidence and theory that's been going back for quite some years, building up models like the standard model of particle mm-hmm. physics, of which the Higgs boson was another piece of the jigsaw, the current picture of the Big Bang universe. Um, but do you ever think for a moment, oh, something could upset all of this? And is it with a sigh of relief that you and other scientists find out that the latest piece fits nicely into the picture? Well, I think we will be... Uh elated if we found something fundamentally new. So something um, that totally destroyed it. Yes, yes, but, but <laughs> I, I do think it's unlikely. Of course, um, everyone knows about the idea, which goes back to the famous book by Thomas Kuhn 50 years ago, Scientific Revolution. Structure of Scientific Revolutions, it, um, yeah. But I think that idea has been rather oversold in mm-hmm. that uh, it's hard to think of many cases when there's been a discovery that sent people back to the drawing board. Mm-hmm. The Copernican Revolution was one. Uh, in a sense, the quantum revolution was another, But apart from that, I think what normally happens is that each advance uh, transcends and generalizes what came before. I mean, Einstein didn't overthrow Newton. Newton's theory is still very good. I mean, spacecraft are planned to go, programmed to go to the outer planets on the basis of Newtonian theory. It's good enough for that. But what Einstein did was he gave us a theory that was better in two senses. First, it had wider applicability. It applied when... The speeds went close to the speed of light. It applied when gravity was as strong as it is around neutron stars or black holes. And also it gave us a deeper insight into why it's an inverse square law, why all objects form the same speed, etc. So it was certainly a conceptual advance and a generalization, but it didn't really overthrow Newton. And I think that's more typical of what happens in science. And uh, if we think of uh, biology from Mendel's genetics onwards, nothing's been overthrown, but obviously there's been tremendous uh, deepening of our insights by uh, double helix and everything since then in biology, and similarly by everything we've learnt in in physics. So uh, there could be um, a complete revolution, but I don't think it's going to uh, invalidate the general picture we have about the micro world of quantum uh, nor the um, uh, world of astronomy that we study when we look look at galaxies. Uh, there is um, a lot of debate actually about the nature of the um, unified theory. Um, the most popular version is this, called string, string theory, theory yeah. but uh, um, there's no direct empirical test of that and there may be some other lines it may not be, it may be that something else is correct and that's not on the right lines at all. Um, And it could be that the uh, so-called dark energy is uh, due to some small correction to Einstein's theory. And so there's a debate about whether the final theory will actually incorporate exactly Newton's, sorry, Einstein's theory and quantum theory or whether one or other will have to be modified. Roger Penrose, for instance, thinks that uh, quantum theory may need a bit of tweaking if you want to incorporate gravity, mm-hmm. whereas others say it'll be gravity mm-hmm. that uh, needs the modification when the quantum effects come in. Uh, so uh, th- there will be some modifications. But again, the important point is that uh, this unification of the quantum world and the world of uh, gravity 
is only important if you want to understand the microstructure of space or the very, very early stages of the Big Bang. It's irrelevant to 99% of scientists because um, uh, 99% of scientists are neither particle physicists on the very small nor astronomers working on the very large. Most scientists work on very complicated things and there you don't need to worry about uh, this unification. You've said some rather interesting things about uh, that contrast that you just drew between these big questions of physics and cosmology and these areas where the majority of scientists are working on mm. the complex questions in biology, mm-hmm. in ecology, yes. climate yes. science, yes. massive systems with lots of moving yeah. parts. Yes. Um, a lot of people think that the most elusive, uh, abstruse, rarefied knowledge is that that comes out of physics. You give a nod, though, to other fields as, as tackling even more complex things. And I'm reminded of a great quote from uh, a mathematician who was featured in a, a BBC program you were also part of uh, called What We Still Don't Know. This is John Conway, and he said, Mathematics is simple. It's cats that are complicated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I think, I think it's true. I mean, the um, uh, particle physics and uh, cosmology and grav- gravity and relativity, they are as you said, rarefied su- subjects, and in a sense they are telling us about the uh, bedrock nature of space, time, and matter. Um, but that doesn't mean that they are the only great intellectual challenges, or even that they're the greatest intellectual challenges, because uh, uh, what uh, is indeed challenging is uh, uh, complexity and uh, the simplest insect, and certainly a cat, uh, <laughs> is uh, much more complicated uh, and uh, uh, and that is the challenge to most scientists, to understand the complexity of materials uh, and of the biological world and of humans. And, of course, um, it's odd that um, I expect people to take me seriously when I talk about uh, a galaxy a billion light-years away, but you're foolish to take seriously what an expert says about diet or childcare, <laughs> <laughs> which are people, things everyone cares about. Because, and that's not because the practitioners of those subjects are foolish. It's because they're dealing with a much more complicated subject uh, than either an atom or a star. Indeed. I mean, I think it's astounding that you can say with a certain amount of confidence what happened 13.7 billion years ago, and yet we could not, the two of us, agree on exactly what happened yesterday in human affairs. Absolutely. And, and, uh, (laughs) uh, well, I mean, it's it's, uh, things like the the weather prediction, that's very hard. We now understand why. Um, and anything biological is very, very complex. Um, and I think there's a sort of fundamental question that comes in here, which is uh, with the nature of what's called reductionism. Um, I think most of us think that, in a sense, uh, everything, however complicated, is uh, governed by the basic laws of physics. So there's a famous equation called Schrodinger's equation, which tells us how atoms behave, etc. And I think... Uh, most physicists and most scientists believe that uh, everything is a solution of Schrodinger's equation. <laughs> um, but uh, believing that, um, in, it in a sense demystifies the world, but it doesn't really help us. And it doesn't give us the kind of explanation we seek, because um, even if we could solve Schrodinger's equation for something as complicated as a mouse, <laughs> which we certainly can't. We, we can't. can't solve even a single complicated molecule. Uh, then it wouldn't tell us anything we wanted to understand. Uh, and so all the sciences 
have their own irreducible concepts. I mean, we think of the sciences in a hierarchy where there's physics at the basis, then there's chemistry, then there's um, uh, cell biology, then organisms, and then sociology, and economists in the penthouse, as I like to say. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, and it's true that, in a sense, uh, all those phenomena that are studied by the other scientists are consequences of Ferdinand's uh, equation. But the explanations we seek are not explanations in terms of Ferdinand's equation. Um, to, well, to, to take a, s- a very simple example, a sort of inanimate example, we're, uh, we're sitting here doing this interview just by the ocean where we see waves breaking. And there's a lot of theory about uh, how fluids move, how ocean waves break, and uh, what makes them break, etc. And it's a quite interesting branch of science. Um, but the people who do that, they don't care that water is H2O. They treat water as a continuum, and they introduce concepts like turbulence, viscosity, and things like that. And fluid dynamics, um, fluid which dynamics, is yeah, terribly yes. complicated. I, I, yes, and it's a, it's, a, it's a topic which has its own level of explanation. Um, and uh, uh, it's true that every wave is a solution to Schrodinger's equation, but uh, <laughs> the answers we want, if you want to understand what makes waves break, is an answer that comes in terms of other concepts, and that's true even of something which is a simple physical phenomenon like waves. It's even more true when we come to living world. I mean, if you're trying to understand uh, animal behavior, well, if I you could. use concepts like uh, striving and uh, uh, evolution, etc., and uh, you don't use concepts from physics. In fact, I'd love to quote you from your book, uh, From Here to Infinity. An albatross returns to its nest after wandering 10,000 miles in the southern oceans, and it does this predictably. But it would be impossible, even in principle, to calculate this behavior bottom-up by regarding the albatross as an assemblage of atoms. Everything, however complicated, breaking waves, migrating birds, tropical forests, is made of atoms and obeys the equations of quantum physics. But even if those equations could be solved, they wouldn't offer the enlightenment that scientists seek. Each science has its own autonomous concepts and laws. Reductionism is true in a sense, but it's seldom true in a useful sense. Yes, but that's more succinct verse of what I was saying. <laughs> with, uh, uh, but I think that's a, a very important uh, point I'd like to make. I, I was uh, very interested to see you make that point. You know, I think there is something um, of a hubris sometimes in what people would call the fundamental sciences, that they could explain everything, mm. that uh, sciences like biology and, again, the, the human sciences and things like that, they're a poor substitute for a far better and more fundamental theory. Mm. Uh, but you don't agree with them. No, I think that's deeply misleading. And, indeed, the term theory, theory of everything, which is used by some particles, I think is inappropriate for just the reason you've mentioned, because, uh, uh, indeed, it's telling us about the bedrock nature of reality. But uh, it's irrelevant to... Uh, what biologists and most other scientists are trying to do. Uh, they're not helped by having such a theory. They're not held up to not having it. They're held up because they're dealing with things that are very complicated. Mm-hmm. And new rules come into play. Absolutely. At yes. different mm-hmm. levels of the hierarchy yes. that we're talking mm-hmm. about. New levels of explanation. New levels of explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the tone of the book uh, I just mentioned, From Here to Infinity, which is, I think, your most recent book. That's right. You've written is. a lot. Mm-hmm. One of the striking things, it's, it, I would say it's a humble book. It conveys a certain humility on your... <laughs> on your Thank part. You very much. <laughs> <laughs> About a lot of big questions. Um, I was interested to read your comments on religion. 
I mean, you're not religious. Right. You're a man of science and all of that. But you aren't as dismissive of religion as, say, well, just to pull out one name, say Richard Dawkins, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, a, a British uh, biologist famous for evolutionary science. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's your take on the relationship between science and religion, science and faith? Well, I think there can and should be peaceful coexistence between them. Um, obviously, uh, uh, one has to oppose claims for creationism, etc., which are contrary to scientific knowledge. But uh, I think uh, there are many scientists who I know who are religious people, and they practice a religion. They have beliefs which they regard as entirely consistent with uh, their science. And I think it's sort of arrogant and insulting to deny that such people can be good scientists, <laughs> because we know very well that many people who are uh, adherents of some faith but they still do their science. How, how do they reconcile the two, do you think? Well, you ought to ask them rather than me, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I think it is clear that um, many religious adherents um, are perfectly happy with modern science, and uh, I know a number of bishops of the English church who are entirely happy and relaxed about uh, even multiverses and cosmology and flaky things like that. Uh, so <laughs> I, I don't think there's any problem. I think... Uh, it's just um, looking at a different texture of reality, as it were, rather than uh, anything that conflicts. And I do indeed believe that the uh, more aggressive atheists um, are actually damaging. Like Mr. Dawkins? Yes. Um, I think they're damaging because uh, they imply that uh, it is not possible to support a faith and be a scientist. And, for instance, if you were teaching a group of high school kids who were Muslims, if you tell them they can't have their God and have Darwin, they'll choose their God and be lost to science. And that's not what we want to happen. So so there's that pragmatic reason that you just named. Um, I've also noticed that in just the same way that some religious advocates try to step into what I would call scientific turf and make pronouncements on things like cosmology... (laughs) in a way that puts them at odds with science. There are those advocates of atheism that say science gives us all we need, not only of descriptions of the material world, but of uh, ethics, of a deep understanding of meaning in our Mm. lives. What would you say to that? Um, Well, I I would say that uh, you can't derive ethics from science at all, and we need to um, have some other... uh, a set of values which we get in some other way, some culturally conditioned way, obviously. And uh, there is genuine dispute, obviously, about the ethical implications of the applications of science, uh, simply because people do have different views um, which come from different cultures. Um, But I think one can't derive ethics just from science. One can obviously um, uh, follow up the consequence of a particular ethical system. And to take one particular example, um, there's a lot of ethical dispute about stem cells and embryo mm-hmm. research, for instance. And uh, I've been involved in the UK, uh, where we've set up a fairly good regulatory framework because the uh, legislators and the scientists and the theologians and people all talk together. Um, and the way I put it is like this. Um, when people are debating embryo research... What we as scientists can do is make sure that they realize what a 14-day-old or 8-week-old embryo is actually like. 
Tatooines is not some sort of homunculus. Mm-hmm. We can make sure that they are not discussing it on some false perceptions. But having done that, if they say, well, okay, we understand what you're saying, but still we think it's sacred, then end of story. Mm-hmm. We can't debate mm-hmm. it further. So there will be different attitudes, different values, um, even if people agree on the scientific facts. And what we can do as scientists, and what we should do as scientists, is to engage with the public and politicians in debates about the application of science, but accepting that when we get beyond science, then the issues involve ethics, politics, economics, and other uh, aspects that we aren't experts in, and where we'll have different opinions depending on our political stance. The opposition, I think, as you note in your book, between science and religion, the, the, the kind of political clash that's occurring, is a lot more heated, I think, in the U.S. than it is mm-hmm. in Great Britain, where you live. Yes. In mm-hmm. fact, we had just the other day, I think it was a U.S. congressman, say not only that evolution is a hoax, but also the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes. That's mm-hmm. how far people have gone Yes. Uh, in, in seeing science as a threat you know, to their faith. Yes. Well, I think as scientists, we must uh, do all we can to debunk misperceptions of that kind. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who I know, would certainly not go along with that, and he's entirely relaxed about all of modern science. I'm I'm curious to know, from your perspective then, in a country where these things haven't escalated to an all-out battle, what it's like to observe that happening over here in the U.S. Well, I think there are many things about the U.S. which perplex us Europeans. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There are many similarities, and fairly similar language and all that sort of thing. But, of course, um, there are differences in general political attitudes. Um, I think, uh, um, to take two examples I quote in my book, um, the median opinion on guns and capital punishment is very different in Europe Mm -hmm. from over here. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, There's no uh, mainstream European politician who would support capital punishment or support the... uh, um, the gun laws or lack of them you have over here. That's just an example. Um, but the other thing that perplexes me is that the U.S. is the country which has uh, the largest number of top-rate scientists in the world. I would claim that we Brits have, have more brain for the buck, but uh, <laughs> in terms of total, you and the U.S. are clearly the number one. Um, but despite that, um, you have the, the strongest uh, lobby of mindless anti-science campaigning, and that is just a mystery to me. Uh, I'm mystified also. I thought maybe you could explain it to me. Well, I think it's partly, obviously, (laughs) because the one good thing about America is that uh, public opinion is more Mm. vocal. Uh, Everyone feels they have the right to express themselves vocally. Um, And uh, that's perhaps why these opinions, which are based on deep ignorance, do get more traction over here. Now, you you mentioned in your book... uh, a bit of an, let's say, envy of the the kind of resources that the U.S. has scientifically, uh, yes. the number of scientists and all that. On the other hand, I, when I look at your field, uh, theoretical physics, cosmology, certainly many of the biggest names are not only in England, but they're right there where you come from, mm-hmm. Cambridge. I mean, mm-hmm. from well, Newton I think on. We, I think we do have a lot of <laughs> brain for the buck in the, in the U.K. and particularly my, my university, which is an outstanding center for... Uh, uh, these kinds of research. How and is it? Another one... Nobel Prize this week for stem cell pioneering. Oh, that's right. You know, yeah. Which is great. Uh, so we we are a very strong center. Uh, so we are keeping our end up against the uh, leading centers around the world. And uh, I think uh, 
you know, we admire tremendously the resources that you have in the U.S., uh, where, as I say, there is the largest uh, volume of top-rate scientists any- in science anywhere in the world. But, of course, um, uh, the Far East is catching up. There are centers of excellence being built up in uh, China, Singapore, and places like that, um, which is a good thing. I mean, uh, it does, it's not a zero-sum game. The more good science done worldwide, the better. Um, but I think we in Europe uh, have uh, uh, got certain strengths, and particularly in my areas, I think uh, um, the world's best ground-based telescope is um, a European one, the, um, the very large array, which is four eight-metre telescopes meshed together in Chile. That, mm-hmm. And we have plans for a 39-metre, which we hope will be the first of the next-generation telescopes to get built. Um, and so we hope to keep our end up in uh, um, optical astronomy. And, of course, we've already talked about uh, uh, um, CERN and the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva. And uh, CERN was a European laboratory. But uh, ever since the Americans cancelled the uh, Super Collider, um, it's been... Uh, the case that CERN is now a world laboratory, mm-hmm. and it's uh, the That's number right. one. Um, and uh, I think this is uh, this is fine. Uh, it's a, science is a truly global culture, and we are seeing uh, the centre of that particular field of science there. Um, conversely, um, when we look towards space science, uh, NASA's program has always been a higher level than Europe. So, uh, in space science, at least until recently, um, Europe has been uh, uh, um, secondary to the U.S. in its overall effort in space. Mm-hmm. Obviously, manned space flight we haven't done at all, but unmanned space flight still, uh, we've had a rather smaller program. Though there again, I think the gap is closing. We should say that when it comes to these facilities, um, the large telescopes, the uh, large particle accelerators like the Large Hadron Collider, it's not really a competition because they're shared by scientists worldwide. Everybody can get time on those instruments. Yes, uh, absolutely. I think uh, uh, we're now getting to the stage when we have to have a world machine. Mm-hmm. And even when we don't need a world machine, then uh, the worldwide community ensures complementarity. I mean, that has happened in astronomy for some years, that if the U.S. builds something, then uh, we in Europe are not actually duplicated, we do something which is complementary and share, share time in a rational way. Do you think that the world would be a better place mm. if most human institutions worked uh, like the institution of science? Meaning well, this cooperation? Well, I think it is true that scientists are able to cooperate, but uh, I think in a sense they're cooperating on something which is indeed a global culture where they're all heading the same way and uh, the conflict which uh, um, bedevil any other kind of international negotiations are therefore rather muted. Um, So I think scientists can really uh, teach a lesson in that they are global in their outlook and also they plan long term. And I think if we turn to the problems of uh, the world more generally, uh, then most of those problems do require international action, whether it's sort of feeding 9 billion people in 2050, whether it's uh, dealing with climate change and all these things. They need uh, global action, and they also need longer-term thinking than the time of the next election or the time that uh, businesses normally discount. And I think those are uh, areas where um, uh, we need to become more global and more long-term, and the scientists are doing this uh, already. And, and I think uh, uh, we, we can learn from them. And, of course, if we look back into the past, 
um, scientists have been able to uh, to bridge the deepest political divisions. I mean, even in the depth of the Cold War, uh, there were links between uh, um, scientists in the United States and scientists in the Soviet Union. Yeah, that um, is a fascinating story, that despite all the secrecy, there were physicists mm, talking to each other. There were, and I think uh, um, this led to collaboration on fusion research for energy, but also I think it uh, provided back in the 1960s, a back channel to their governments, which I think helped to lubricate the, um, uh, partial, the, the um, partial test ban treaty in the early 60s and the ABM treaty in the late 60s. So, so I think the role was played by the Pugwash conferences um, and the U.S. National Academy and its Russian counterpart were important there because there were um, uh, contacts and mutual trust among the scientists who then fed back to their government. So that's an example. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. to give another example now, uh, there is in Jordan a, a scientific project called Sesame uh, in physics, which uh, uh, is remarkable in getting um, Israelis and Iranians around the same table. So even if it doesn't do much science, at least it's good for uh, oh, bridging barriers that can't be bridged in oh, other I didn't ways. know about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, are Iranian scientists given the freedom to uh, you know, work in their fields unfettered? You think? Well, they are on that, and of course we have we have a lot in the UK, uh-huh. um, and uh, and I think um, uh, um, their their quality of science is very good. I mean, I, to give a personal reminiscence of that, um, uh, there's something called the um, International Physics Olympiad, which is for um, high school kids, right, and, uh, right, where each nation spends a team, and it was held in England about ten years ago, and I was president of the of it for that year, um, and. Uh, there were about 60 countries competing. And, of course, worldwide, um, there's this usual problem that girls are not so common in physics. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, but the, the best girl in the entire competition was an Iranian girl. Um, and uh, the uh, uh, team leader in, from Iran was a woman. And so they not only had uh, uh, the best uh, women's education, but also had very strong physics. And so uh, uh, we should admire... Uh, despite all the problems, the uh, achievements of those countries in education. Well, hooray for science on that level as well. And then um, I think you have a, you have a nice quote uh, in your book. You say, science is organized skepticism. So it's a culture in which argument and doubt are not only tolerated, they're encouraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't mean um, acrimony, you know, to disagree with someone. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I, I think that that's, that's important. And the other thing about it is it is therefore rather non-hierarchical because we all are aware that the best ideas don't necessarily come from the people at the top of the hierarchy. They often come from the young people, and so that makes it a especially uh, attractive community to be in socially because uh, uh, although obviously there are sort of levels of seniority in the administration, uh, everyone accepts that the best ideas and the, those most listening to uh, may be from the young people, not the old people. You're, you're reminding me, though, of a, a topic I've explored on this radio program in the past, which is what some people politely call outsider science and some people impolitely call cranks, Mm -hmm. a world of people who have maybe dubious or or no scientific credentials who are also thinking away and Mm -hmm. trying to come up with their own theories. Are you approached by um, amateur scientists very often with their own theories? Yes. Well, there is a difficult penumbra, of course. I mean, uh, (laughs) uh, there are um, uh, one very exciting development 
um, is that especially with the internet and the fact that anyone can now access and download huge data sets, there is a huge potential for citizen scientists. Um, in the UK, something called the Galaxy Zoo project was started, which has got tens of thousands of people helping to classify three million galaxies, etc. And now the uh, they can look for planets with the Kepler data. So there are lots and lots of ways in which amateur scientists have far more scope than before, and this is absolutely great. But if we had, uh, you know, a patent clerk working in obscurity somewhere, yes, yes. you know, jotting down equations uh, all by his lonesome outside of any university, yes. would there be a way? And uh, by the way, I'm referring, of course, to yep. Einstein. Mm-hmm. Um, would there be any way for those ideas to make their way into the establishment? I, th- I think there would, because Einstein wasn't. Uh, wasn't so much out of the the mainstream. He'd been at university, etc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, so uh, uh, I do think that the uh, internet has leveled the playing field tremendously. And uh, if you were a young student in India, then it would have been demoralizing 20 years ago because it would be hard to get a hearing. Whereas now, and I give examples in my book, there are cases where Indian students have had great ideas that within a day um, the meetings have been convened in the United States to discuss those ideas. That had never happened 20 years ago. And so it's wonderful how the playing field has been leveled and more people can participate. Um, but I think, nonetheless, uh, there are, of course, some people who um, are completely outside the mainstream and, uh, you know, the UFO people have been abducted and all that. And, uh, uh, and I find it hard to engage with them as I do with creationists or astrologers. <laughs> because they're often very fluent and flip, but their premises are so different that uh, it's very hard to debate with them. I'm guessing, though, that you're approached by such people all the time. I mean, oh, well, I, get, I get a lot of uh, uh, requests from them, and, uh, and particularly the uh, UFO people. Um, and because I, in fact, uh, my line is that we should look for extraterrestrial life. It's a really important area of science, etc., but I don't think we found it yet. And there are these people who think that uh, the UFOs have been here and they've been abducted, etc. And so I respond to those people in two ways. I say, uh, if the extraterrestrials had made the huge effort to traverse interstellar distances to come here, would they just meet a few well-known cranks, <laughs> uh, make a few circles in cornfields and go away again? <laughs> don't think it's likely. And secondly, I tell these people to write to each other, not to me. <laughs> So it is hard to engage with some people who uh, uh, have these views. Well, just like another example, those who don't think Neil Armstrong ever lands on the moon. There are still people like that, aren't there? And uh, uh, it's very hard to engage with them. So there is a sort of, uh, um, well, there's an increasing number of people who are doing good science outside the academic mainstream, facilitated by the Internet, and that's really great news. That's a huge positive development. But there are also, of course, and always have been, people who are... um, really developing ideas that uh, uh, take no cognizance of what the mainstream says and therefore um, are very hard to uh, debate. Well, the spirit of democracy, uh, at least in the U.S. that you praised earlier, has given rise to the idea that nobody's an authority anymore and that we don't have to Mm. take scientists, even a large consensus of scientists, all that seriously. Um, of course, I'm talking about climate science, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you ta- you write about that in your book. Yes, yes. Um, science has not made a lot of headway in this country in persuading people to take action, mm. or that it's a, a problem worthy of action. Yes. Well, I think um, uh, there are lots of complicated issues in climate change, and uh, because any action we might want to take 
is difficult to gain support for because, first of all, it has to be global to be effective and it's very long-term because the downsides of climate change are in the uh, fairly remote future by normal standards. Um, and the science itself is clearly uncertain. I mean, uh, the one thing that is certain is that uh, the CO2 being pumped into the atmosphere by anthropogenic sources and that is warming the uh, climate, other things being equal, but how much is uncertain because of the feedback effect. So, But human-caused global warming, in your yes. mind, is not in doubt. It's just a question yes. of what is the, well, the, question is, is the how, magnitude of the effect. Yes, and, and, uh, and we have the uncertainties. But I think the point I would make is that even if we all agreed on the science, then there would still be legitimate debate on what the right response should be, the balance between adaptation um, and mitigation and uh, uh, how much we bet on a technical fix, etc., and what discount rate we apply. So there's plenty to debate. And I think what is a pity is that uh, uh, in Australia, and to some extent in this country, um, uh, many people have not liked the carbon tax or something that's been implemented. Um, and rather than the debating the economic issue, they rubbish the scientists, whereas what all, all of us should be agreed on is that we need better science because the science is... Uh, uh, making progress, but the topic is very difficult and still we don't have predictions which are um, reliable on a regional level. And, of course, we want to know not just the mean temperature rise of the world, but we want to know how it's going to affect domains of drought and, uh, uh, and desert in the, uh, in the world. Mm -hmm. We don't yet have that. So everyone ought to surely want the science to improve. Have um, you ever spoken to uh, your fellow physicist Freeman Dyson about this? Oh yes, yes, mm -hmm. and yes. and he is, uh, I think, virtually alone among you know top level uh, physical scientists. Yes, yes. In being skeptical, not that the Earth is warming, but that it is necessarily anthropogenic, that is human caused, and that we understand it well enough to even make some of the uh, the worrisome predictions that are being made. Well, I mean, I think uh, even he would agree that the rise in the CO2 is anthropogenic yes. and that that would other things be equal, produce some warming. Mm -hmm. But he would say that that is swamped by other effects. and Possibly uh, natural and effects. And so he would favor yeah. the lowest of the IPCC projections according to which even by the end of the century it will be less than two degrees. Right. Um, and uh, that may be right, but, uh, but, uh, but there is a big range. And my take on this is that um, we really need to pay an insurance premium, as it were, against the worst case, because even though uh, things are uncertain, there's clearly a risk of something very serious happening by the end of the century, and I think that justifies having this high on the political agenda. So uh, I uh, certainly uh, think it is right to take this seriously, although I think we have to accept that uh, um, the debate has become too polarised, um, because... Uh, um, scientists don't always emphasize that there are great uncertainties. Um, and uh, um, the public, of course, um, tend naturally to focus on the short term and local issues. Uh, certainly for Britain and Canada, um, things are going to be good for the next 50 or 100 years if there's a bit of warming. There's no problem there, except we'll have uh, enhanced immigration. Um, but but uh, overall, for the world, in the long run, there are is a potentially very serious problem, obviously. There may be some English port cities that will be partly underwater. Though, well, indeed, uh, the, the sea, sea level rise is <laughs> going to be a problem for all of us, uh, depending on how fast, fast that is. So I think that is an example of, a, of an issue where um, uh, the science is sort of uncertain. Um, but 
I think going back to what you said at the beginning, um, there is a reason for attaching more weight to experts than to others, um, even if the experts are themselves uncertain. Uh, um, and uh, the analogy I would give is that uh, if you've got some sort of ailment, you may look on the internet and you find all kinds of uh, remedies and things for whatever ailment you've got, um, but you don't attach equal weight to that. You will go, if you need some sort of treatments, to someone who's got credentials, um, as a qualified doctor or someone. Mm. Um, and likewise, uh, if the public and politicians want some uh, opinion on uh, climate science, then they would do better to go to people who at least have credentials in that subject. Uh, although bearing in mind that uh, in such a difficult subject as uh, the world's future climate, uh, even they are going to be uncertain and could be wrong. Now, now, some might think that having contemplated the universe on such a grand scale that you might be serenely indifferent to mm -hmm. the paltry world of human affairs and this microscopic dot of a planet that we live mm -hmm. on. You know, <laughs> but but how has uh, your study of cosmology? changed your feeling or affected your feeling about the world you live in? Well, it certainly doesn't make me more serene, and uh, <laughs> uh, that seems to be the case for most of my colleagues, and I've lived amongst these people for a long time. Um, but uh, I think, and again I say this in my book, um, there is one thing where we do bring a new perspective to general culture. Um, we've talked about evolution, um, and uh, that most people you know, outside the enclaves of uh, Kansas and parts of the Muslim world do believe that we're the outcome of four billion years or so of Darwinian evolution on the earth, um, and that that's part of our common culture and a very important part. But I think nonetheless that very many people still think that we humans are the culmination, the end of the process, and that's something which no astronomer could really accept, because the one thing we do learn in astronomy is that the universe has more time ahead of it than it's had up till now. I mean, the sun has been shining for four and a half billion years, and it'll go on for another six billion. So uh, even the sun is only halfway through its life, and the universe may go on forever. And uh, I like to quote Woody Allen, who said, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. <laughs> and so there's plenty of time. And th the message I draw from that <laughs> is that uh, um, evolution may not be even at the halfway stage. And any creatures who witness the demise of the sun in six billion years' time, they won't be humans. They'll be as different from us as we are from a bug, because the time between now and then uh, is even greater. And you can make that statement even stronger, because uh, uh, evolution in the past has happened on the timescale of Darwinian natural selection, a few million years for species to evolve and become extinct, whereas future evolution here on Earth, and of course, even more so if uh, communities move away from the Earth into space, is going to take place on the technological timescale. Within a few generations, mm. any people living away from the Earth will use all the resources of genetic understanding to modify their descendants to adapt to that alien world. And so the post-human era will begin, the human species will diversify, and that could happen in a few centuries. And so uh, we've not only got as much time lying in the future as we've had in the past, but evolution controlled by humans or their descendants, and their descendants may be organic, they may be machines, will be much, much, much faster. So uh, I think 
to answer your question about what special uh, message astronomy gives me, it gives me the message that um, this century is very special, um, but uh, uh, we are not the, the end. We are the century which will determine what happens in the far distant future. We could snuff ourselves out if we're very uh, unfortunate. On the other hand, we could see the initiation of a post-human era here on Earth and far beyond. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Very good to speak with you. Martin Rees is Emeritus Professor of Cosmology and Astrophysics at the University of Cambridge and the Astronomer Royal of the United Kingdom. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And uh, I just wanted to note here that when I mentioned earlier that a U.S. congressman had called the Big Bang and evolution hoaxes, I was actually understating things. What Representative Paul Brown of Georgia in fact said was that the Big Bang, evolution, and embryology are lies from the pit of hell, which actually sounds like a good name for a radio show like this one. I'm going to have to think about that. But in the meantime, you can find us under our current name on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs>